Let me begin with a little story I came across from a parent, apparently a pastor parent like me. This is not a story from my own journey with parenthood, but uh, it could be. I've experienced some things like this over the years. This particular parent, pastor, wrote, I woke up when I heard the crash. Not a loud crash, but a crash nonetheless. Before I could peel myself out of bed, I heard the pitter-patter of little feet running up the stairs. Dad, my little five-year-old said in her most innocent, sweet voice, will you make us breakfast? Um, sure. What happened just now, I asked groggily. Well, we were starving, and so we tried to make it ourselves. We tried to make some oatmeal. I guessed the rest. Jane and her older brother Jonas had successfully gotten oatmeal into a bowl, filled it with water, and put it in the microwave. But they had misjudged how hot the bowl would be when the oatmeal was ready. And dropping a hot bowl is just human reflex. I wasn't mad about the bowl. It was old or inexpensive or both. But I was puzzled. They'd tried to clean up the mess of oatmeal and broken pottery with a mop, unsuccessfully. And now the mop was ruined too. Why didn't you guys just ask me for help? I would have come and helped you clean this up. But before they could respond, the answer became apparent. It's hard enough to ask for help, but it's even harder when you have to ask for help to clean up a mess of your own making. Why? Because of pride and shame. Pride and shame are the natural result of our failures. And they come out both in how we relate to other people and ultimately in how we relate to God himself. These are the effects of sin, the shortcomings in our lives, the wrongdoing that's present in each one of our lives. Our text for this morning from Luke 24 is, is really an amazing and insightful story to think about because it's one of the few clear descriptions that we have of what Jesus spoke about with his disciples immediately after he, he rose from the dead. In fact, it's really a summary of what he spoke about uh, on the few occasions that he appeared to them over the course of those 40 days. You remember, right? He rose from the dead, and then 50 days later was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. It was 10 days before the day of Pentecost that Jesus was ascended into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so there were 40 days then that Jesus had with his disciples. But what's interesting about the gospel accounts is that it's, it's evident he wasn't with them the entire time. He wasn't present with the disciples for the entire duration of those 40 days. There were just several encounters that they had with the risen Lord, where on certain occasions he would appear to them, interact with them, talk with them, and then be gone again. It's all rather mysterious, but at least in this particular encounter, 
we get a glimpse of what Jesus had to say after his resurrection. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I find it fun and uh, a, a bit entertaining, a bit engaging to imagine in a situation like this. Like, if you died and then somehow rose from the dead and had about one month to talk with the people that you loved most, what would you say? What would you want to talk about? What would you want to do with them? How would you want to spend that time knowing that you only had one month and then you were going to be gone again? It's okay when you read a story like this to, you know, take a little creative license and use your imagination to ponder questions like that. I think it helps us get our heads and hearts around what Jesus is doing with his disciples. So the, the real focal point that I want to draw your attention to is in verses 40, 44 to 47. He says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. So he's repeating a theme. He's circling back around to some things that he told them before his death and resurrection that he wants them to remember and refocus on. And then he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then there's this, this incredible description from Luke. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I don't know about you, but when I read a phrase like that, I, this is one of those situations where I think, oh my goodness, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have heard that discussion, that dialogue unfold. What was that like? In that moment, when Jesus opened the minds of his disciples so that they could understand the scriptures in a whole new and deeper way, what were they experiencing? That's an amazing statement. And then we're given the description of what he said in the next two verses. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, you know, there's plenty of good stuff that we could dig into here that we could focus on and talk about. But if you're paying close attention and you're actively looking for the connection with my message title, perhaps you've already noticed that, that the one sentence here I want to zero in on today is verses 46 and 47, where Jesus says, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. What does that amount to? Essentially, Jesus is unpacking for his disciples all that the scriptures, that is the Bible, foretold about him before it happened. So verse 45 sets the stage, and then verses 46 and 47 begin to unfold the drama. Jesus is revealing to his disciples what the scriptures were pointing to, that is the Old Testament scriptures. They were pointing to him, to his coming as the Messiah, to his death, to his resurrection from the dead. And not just what he was to come and do, but then what his disciples were meant to do after he did his part, which is to share the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
So again, notice how the sentence begins. This is what is written, Jesus says. And then he proceeds to speak of his own death and resurrection, the fulfillment of which had just recently taken place. And finally, he summarizes the intended result of his death and resurrection with this statement. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So so Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what I have in mind for you. This is what I want for you. This is your assignment. This is your job. I'm not going to be around much longer. I'm going to go to be with the Father once and for all. We have a few days left, a few hours maybe. So here's the heart of what I want you to understand. This is what you are meant to do with your faith in me. Now, it's about the role of the disciples, of course. But I want you to think about what Jesus is is saying, what what he's pointing our attention to. What Jesus is pointing out is that this was God's plan from the very beginning. This was God's heart from the very beginning. In fact, really, here's the first takeaway I'd put before you. What what, uh, Jesus is saying and what Luke is describing here points us to the reality that according to the Bible, forgiveness of sins was the heart of God and the plan of God long before Jesus' death and resurrection. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, God's just sitting around some, one day thinking, oh, maybe I should just um, uh, send Jesus down to become a man. And then, you know, the events of his death and resurrection unfolded accidentally circumstantially. No, what Jesus is saying is that the the Scriptures foretold all this. They were pointing to this. The Old Testament was pointing people's attention to the plan of God and the heart of God to provide a way for the forgiveness of sin. So God's grace is an expression of his great love for us because it's out of his love for us that he planned ahead of time to provide for our forgiveness. And let's remember, right, that God's grace is to be received as a free gift, as Paul explains. It's not given to people because we actually deserve it. It's given out of love, and it has to be received with that understanding. So all of this, the plan of God, the heart of God to forgive the sins of men and women like you and I is an expression of his love. And there are several places throughout the Bible where this idea is reinforced, articulated. 1 John 4.10 is an example that we looked at last week. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul says it well in another passage, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So I hope you're seeing in those verses what I'm describing, the reality that I'm describing, that the grace of God to cover sin, the forgiveness of God is an expression of his love for us. 
Behind and beneath it all lies the love of God for people like us. Now, let me give you just one hint here, one example, one highlight of how all of this was foretold from the very beginning. There are several examples we could look at from the Old Testament. We don't have time to do an in-depth survey of every reference that applies here, but I think perhaps the best and most beautiful is the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, where he writes about the suffering servant, the Messiah who was to come. Listen closely to verses 4 through 11. Isaiah writes, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Did you catch the theme of that passage? Seven verses, and there's six references to Jesus carrying the weight of our sin or bearing our iniquities. And again, this was written long before Jesus ever appeared on the earth by the prophet Isaiah. In fact, about 700 years, roughly, before Jesus was born. It's a prediction. It's a prophetic prediction of what God intended to do, and he did it. He fulfilled it in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. And and I think what's most amazing about this is not just that Isaiah prophesied and predicted the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that he captured the meaning of it, the purpose of it, the reason behind it all. That our sins would be dealt with, forgiven, paid for. Now you might, if you're new to all this, most of you aren't, but some of you might be, if you're new to all this, how does Jesus' death accomplish our forgiveness? That's a good question, a basic important question for us to think about and be clear about. Well, the theologians have a a fancy uh, term or phrase that they use for this, It's called substitutionary atonement. Some of you might be familiar with the meaning of that. It's just a fancy theological way of saying Jesus took the punishment for our sins upon himself. He took it upon himself. We were meant to be punished for our sin. That was the just 
result of our sin, but Jesus willingly took that punishment upon himself. A couple of things that help to clarify how this works, how God worked out his plan to provide for our, our forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 specifies that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood because without the shedding of, the blo of blood, there's no forgiveness. That explains the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, all of which was a prophetic illustration pointing to the need for the sacrifice of Christ and the shedding of his blood. And then in Matthew 26, 28, as they're sharing the Last Supper together, Jesus says to his disciples as he passes them the cup, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So there you have it from the lips of Jesus himself, explaining that he is fulfilling the words of Isaiah. What all this amounts to is that at the cross, Jesus died in our place for our sins. He entered into our pain and our shame. He came and took the weight of evil upon himself so that its power could be broken once and for all. And because he didn't stay in the grave, we know that its power has been broken. It's evident that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the supreme demonstration of God's love, and it's the way in which our forgiveness was provided for. So God, in his great love, has overcome judgment and death. He's freed us from sin. God, in his great love, has announced that one day a new creation will come when all things will be made new and right again, and sin will no longer be present. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the love of God on display. And we can look at, at the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and we can say, this is love. This is the supreme example of God's love for us. So, my friends, that's God's part to play in all of this. It's his love that provides for our forgiveness through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. For many of you, this is familiar territory. It's common understanding for those who've been walking in faith, faith in Jesus Christ for some time. But let's focus now for a few minutes on our part, our response to what God has done for us. We have a part to play in this grand plan, this grand scheme that God has devised. And the first part that we have to play is to receive the forgiveness that we've been offered, the grace that we've been offered. It amounts to this, for people to repent and receive forgiveness, they have to become aware of God's love and convicted of their wrongdoing. I mean, just think about this logically for, for a moment. Why would someone ever confess or apologize for something they've done wrong if they don't really believe that they did anything wrong? The awareness, the self-awareness of wrongdoing 
in the Scriptures is referred to as conviction, the conviction of sin, the recognition of sin, the realization that you have done something you shouldn't have done. Now, there's an old saying that I think uh, is helpful for us to bear in mind as we talk about this, as we talk about the reality of sin in each one of our lives. And it goes like this. Perhaps you've heard this too. God loves you just the way you are, right? You've heard that one? God loves you just the way you are. True enough. But someone else, I don't know who it was that that, uh, originally came up with that quote, but someone else later pointed out by extending the quote that he also loves you too much to let you stay that way. And I think that's a fitting addendum, a a fitting addition to the original quote. God loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you too much to let you stay that way. So the heart of God, the plan of God, is to provide a way for your forgiveness and repentance. The two go hand in hand. What he wants to change with our permission is the stain of guilt, sin, guilt, and shame that marks each one of our lives. So let's think about this concept of sin. This is not obviously a popular concept in our culture. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed that, that people's self-awareness of sin has changed dramatically over the last several decades? This is not a word that is commonly accepted or, uh, or employed in our culture any longer, particularly outside the church. And it's definitely not a politically correct concept to talk about. But it is a biblical concept. In fact, the word sin, the Greek word hamartia, is used hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a critically important principle to understand if you want to understand the word of God and the heart of God and the plan of God for forgiveness. Hamartia, this Greek word, perhaps you've heard, literally means missing the mark, missing the mark. So I like to think of it this way, just to give you a little illustration um, I have a couple sons that like to, and a daughter that like to play basketball, right? So imagine that you are invited uh, to go to the free throw line and you're given a ball and you have to shoot free throws. Does anybody ever make 100% of their free throws? No, of course not. Even the best basketball players in the world miss sometimes. Everybody misses sometimes, and those of us who don't practice very much miss a lot more than sometimes, right? So the more you practice, the better you get, and your percentage might be a little higher than the general public. For most of us, if we went to the free throw line and did an experiment, my guess is, you know, we'd be lucky to hit 50%. Now think about that. Think about that illustration of missing the mark, missing the mark. And if you apply that then to life in general, you've begun to get in touch with the concept of sin. Sin is missing the mark. It's it's failing to do what you could have or should have done in a given situation. Failing to think right or act right in a given situation. And we all do it. 
It's common to all of us. And fr frankly, if we're honest with ourselves and others, not to mention honest with God, we miss a lot, don't we? We, we miss the mark all the time. We think things and do things that are just plain wrong. And on the flip side, we, we also fail to do things that we should have done. To get, again, into a, a fancy theological concept, it's like talking about the difference between sins of commission, things that you do wrong that you shouldn't have done, and sins of omission, things that you failed to do that you should have done. In any case, sin isn't just actively doing what's wrong. It's, it's failing to do what's right. It's failing to be who God created us to be and to do what God created us to do. Falling short of the mark that he's set for us. Ultimately, sin is a form of rebellion. It's a turning away from God. It's a decision to move against him or independent of him. It's crossing the lines or the boundaries that God has put in place for our well-being. And ultimately, it's a power. Sin is a power to be reckoned with. It's a, a power at work in each one of our own hearts and minds. It holds us captive, and it paralyzes us with shame once we've partaken. Now, if some of you are still resistant Perhaps you're on board with me here, but I'm sure there are people out there that are resistant to the very concept of sin, and maybe they would have a hard time with this verse too, but I find for, for me personally, if I'm ever feeling a little overly self-righteous, if I'm ever feeling like, you know, a lack of conviction, uh, I found Romans 14, 23 to be really helpful. It's a definition of sin from Paul's vantage point. You know what he says there? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. How are you doing with that? Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Think long and hard about that. And if you don't begin to feel some conviction about the place of selfishness and self-reliance in your own life, then you're not looking closely enough or thinking hard enough. Now, why is this concept so debatable, so difficult for people to grab hold of in the world around us? I mean, everybody knows that there's a difference between right and wrong, right? The problem is defining which is which. The problem is agreeing on what's right and what's wrong. And the problem is that lots of people want to move the lines. They want to move the boundaries. They want to change the definitions so that some people might say, well, what's wrong for you is right for me. And then, you know, the whole concept become, becomes relativized. It becomes subjective. It becomes uh, debatable because who gets to set the standard? Who decides what's right and what's wrong? Aside from what's lawful and unlawful, wherever you happen to live, who's to decide if something that I do is wrong. Well, the reality is that decision belongs to God himself, not to, to us, not to men or women. It's not up to us to define right or wrong. It's up to God. He's the one that sets the standards. He's the one that understands the difference between holy and unholy, 
because he is completely holy and righteous. And, you know, part of what's brought us to this point of um, subjectivity with regard to right and wrong is that people's consciences have been seared as they've turned away from God and embraced selfishness, embraced sinfulness. People's self-awareness of sin has become greatly diminished in our society. I love it when people are so self-aware that they, they, that they express a genuine humility and remorse even when it's questionable whether they should. I recall an instance a few weeks ago where I interacted with someone um, after our worship gathering and they were sharing with me about a, a difficult situation they found themselves in relationally. And they were taking ownership of that issue and uh, feeling very sorry about that particular situation even though it wasn't really their fault. And I thought to myself, this is beautiful. This is, this is humility. This is self-awareness. Humility embraces the awareness of sin, but pride covers it up. Pride wants to hide it. Pride and shame always cover sin up or justify it. But humility recognizes it so that it can be changed, so that it can be dealt with. As I picture uh, the challenge of admitting that we're wrong, I don't know about you, but my mind always goes back to that, that classic episode of Happy Days. You know the one, right? Where, where the Fonz is trying to admit that he did something Come on now, anybody with me here? Have you seen it, right? Thank you. A few of you older folks. I mean, I grew up on happy days. Last week I was talking about another show, uh, The Love Boat. We won't go back to that again. But, um, you know, it's profound, the impact that these shows have on your, your mind and the formative years of your life. And so I remember, I fondly remember how cool the Fonz was and how difficult it was for the Fonz to admit that he had done something wrong. And so he's caught, he's made aware of his shortcoming, and he's trying desperately to confess it, but he can't utter the words because he's too proud to say them. I was, that's a picture, my friends, of the challenge that all of us face when it comes to admitting our sins facing the reality of it. So, what are we to do? What's our part to play in all this? It's to recognize the love of God, become aware of the love of God, and of our own shortcomings, our own wrongdoing. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. John writes, If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And by way of example, I'll just share with you uh, what I think is a phenomenal psalm that indicates the self-awareness and the humility of David. David the great king, David. 
Psalm 32, 1-6, to if you'd put that on the screen for me. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Next slide there, Carson. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's a picture, an example, an illustration of the power of confession and repentance. So that brings us then to to one last insight I want to put before you with the few minutes we have left. One way in which we, we respond to the love of God and the grace of God is to receive forgiveness by confessing our sin and repenting of it. But there's another way that's indicated in our text from Luke 24, and it's really important for us to think about this as well. In fact, it connects right back with what we talked about last Sunday from 1 John chapter 4. How is it, think about this, just think about this from a practical standpoint, how is it that people out there in the world around us would ever become aware of the love of God or their own need to confess their sin? How does that happen? How does it work? How does that self-awareness come to someone? Well, of course, it comes through the Holy Spirit who brings conviction of sin, but it also comes through the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins. It comes through the message and the stories of those who've experienced this. And that takes us right back to what Jesus says in Luke 24, verse 47, right? He's talking about how the word of God prophesied what he was to come and do, that he would die and then that he would be raised again to new life on the third day. And then he says to his disciples that the word of God also foretells that they are to preach the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, Jesus says. Repentance means turning away from what's wrong, turning back to God, turning back to what's right. If you're heading in the wrong direction, repentance means to literally stop and turn and go 180 degrees back in the other direction, to turn away from what's wrong and to turn toward what's right, which is ultimately God himself. But here's the point, right? This message of repentance and forgiveness has to be proclaimed, has to be shared, has to be spoken by the people of God to take effect in the lives of others. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said this was important. He wouldn't have even mentioned it, right? Well, it's all up to God. God convicts people of sin. I've heard people say that. Well, it's true. God convicts people of sin. But he, but he uses our help, if I can put it that way. I know that sounds a little odd, but he does. He depends upon our help by his own choice. 
He's set it up to work this way. So Jesus is explaining to his disciples, you have a message to share. You have a story to tell. You have to speak about your own experience of forgiveness so that others will know that it's available to them as well. So there are two basic ways then in which we apply the words of Jesus. The first one is to repent and receive forgiveness. And the second one is to speak of that experience, to share it with other people. Instead of in our pride and in our shame, trying to hide the presence of sin in our lives and trying to act more self-righteous than we really are, you know what? One of the most effective ways that you can reach people with the good news of Christ is to share about your own shortcomings and how God's forgiven you. That's the message of grace. Personalized. That's the message of your own experience of having been forgiven. And when you can be honest like that and share those, those insights with other people, it's powerful, it's compelling, it's inviting. That's what Jesus is talking about in Luke 24, 47. He's saying, we have a part to play in this, church. We have a job to do. We have a responsibility, an opportunity to speak the message of forgiveness. And as we do that, the Spirit of God moves in people's lives and brings them to an awareness of God's love, brings them to an awareness of their own sinfulness and their need for forgiveness. That, my friends, is the heart of what I wanted to share with you this morning. I want to close before we move to a time of prayer ministry ministry with just a brief illustration, a video illustration. And then, um, actually, I just uh, have a prompting to just invite um, the Spirit of of God to guide our, our time together and to invite some of you even perhaps to share in response to what you've heard this morning. So, take a look at this video. This video really captures the essence of what I've just shared with you in a powerful way. Let's reflect on it. Let's reflect on our own need for forgiveness and God's desire that we would partner with him to proclaim the message of forgiveness. Are we ready? This is our story, life. It looks different for each of us. Family, work, hobbies, favorite places. We all have fears, secrets, regrets. If we are painfully honest, we believe there must be more to life. The life was meant to be more of an adventure and less like a repeat of yesterday. There are times we feel lonely unloved, when we wish life would just be different. Sometimes the burden is too heavy. Our own mistakes haunt us. We feel stuck, helpless, as if the chains of yesterday are holding us captive and the key has been thrown away. There has to be more. God never meant for our life to be like this. He never designed for us to live alone, to be stuck in regret, for life to be mediocre. 
God wrote a different story. Despite the fact that we ignored him and looked the other way, he refused to give up on us. He saw our hurt, our mistakes, our regrets, our sins. He was unwilling for our story to be like this. Jesus knew the cost and left heaven on a mission. He cared for the broken, brought hope to despair, upset the religious elite, and loved people regardless of what they've done. But there was a twist in the story. It made no sense to those around him, but made perfect sense to God. He was betrayed by his friend, dragged away, put through six different trials, beaten, mocked, sentenced to death, and crucified on a cross. His friends had betrayed, denied, and deserted him. Why? Because Jesus was writing his story to rewrite ours. A beautiful exchange paid for our sin on that cross. He rose from the dead and gave his power to us. He traded our mistakes for a fresh start, our fears for strength, our mediocrity for a great adventure. His story changes our story. His story changes our story. Isn't that beautiful? So what I'd like to do for just a few moments is invite you, some of you, perhaps at least one, but perhaps a few, to share in response to what you've just heard about your own experience of God's grace. I told you at the beginning of our message that I was going to save some time at the end for a God story or stories. And I just felt this morning as I, I thought about this message and the practical application of it that it would be good and fitting to respond after the message rather than sharing before it. And particularly because it's what Jesus has called us to do. It's what Jesus is asking of each one of us that we would be ready and willing to share with others the message of repentance and forgiveness on the basis of our own experience. So what I'd like to do is just invite in this moment an opportunity, uh, invite one or more of you as the Spirit leads to come and speak, come and share. How have you experienced this in your own life? How has God forgiven you? And how has that changed you? How has his story changed your story?